Good morning. So glad to be with you at all our locations in Saratoga Half Moon here in Latham. Those of you joining online, we're so happy you're with us today. As you may know, we're continuing in a series entitled The Big Questions of Life. Have you guys been enjoying this series? Huh? Come on. It's a good series, good series. Today we're going to be t- tackling this question, is Christianity too narrow? We're going to look at the exclusive claims of Jesus. And I think one thing we can agree on is that Christianity seems pretty narrow. I mean, all we have to do is look at the claims of Jesus in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty exclusive. Back when I was in college, I took a world religion course. I really liked the professor, but he never missed an opportunity to attack Christianity whenever the opportunity arose. He would say, how arrogant a claim that there's only one way to God that's so exclusive. And I was a relatively new Christian at the time, and his his attacks kind of bothered me a little bit, you know? And I remember listening to the popular apologists of the time. An apologist is one who defends the Christian faith, and and popular at that that time was the late R.C. Sproul or the late Ravi Zacharias to see what they would say against such claims. Well, one day... After class, I went up to the professor. He was very approachable. And I said, hey, prof, do you believe Jesus could be one way to God? He said, oh, absolutely, just not the only way. And I said, well, I'm a Christian, and I believe he's the only way. But but if you're hearing me say that I believe he's the only way because I, Pat Murata, believe it, and therefore everyone else should, then I would agree with you. That's a bigoted, arrogant statement. I said, I believe that Jesus is the only way because Jesus claimed it. And if I deny that, I deny him. And I remember the professor just nodding and smiling. I mean, he didn't waver on his attacks against Christianity for the balance of that semester. But I wanted to let him know what I believe. You know, so many people in our society struggle with the exclusive claims of Jesus because we live in such a diverse Society with so many different religions and so many different beliefs all around us. And for some, it can be very difficult for them to even fathom how anyone could claim to have the market on the truth. I mean, how can there be only one way to God? A popular illustration that is often used by those who object to the claims of Christianity or the exclusive claims of Christianity is, is, is an analogy about a king with an elephant. And this king, wanting to do an experiment, brings in six blind men, and he asks them to tell him what the elephant is. Of course, they can't see the elephant, and so they begin to feel around and touch. The first one touches the side and says it's a wall. Another one touches the foot and says it's a tree. Another one touches the trunk and says it's a snake. Another one touches the ear and says it's a fan. And the point of the story is that those blind men represent the religions of the world. You see, none of them could see the reality, the full reality of the elephant, and yet they were describing the exact same thing as they were touching the elephant, just with different angles and limited perspectives. They grasped part of the reality of the elephant as they touched it, but no one grasped the full reality that it was an elephant. And so they were partly right and partly wrong. 
And so the argument is that all world religions, like those blind men, are unable to really grasp the full reality of God because of their different angles and limited human perspectives. They may grasp part of the reality, but no one grasps the full reality of God, and therefore, all religions are justifiable, legitimate paths to God. That's the argument. Author and theologian Leslie Newbigin, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, writes that when he was a missionary to India, he would often get this analogy thrown at him because he would claim Jesus is the only way. And one day he said he thought deeply about the illustration, and all of a sudden it hit him. He said the only way you can say that the blind men only grasp part of the reality of the elephant is if you grasp the full reality of the elephant. And the only way you can say that all religions only grasp part of the reality of God is if you grasp the full reality of God. It is the only way you can make that argument logically. And then he wrote these words, and I quote, There is an appearance of humility that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But it may be, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So we have to ask the question, what is this absolute vantage point from which you claim to be able to relativize all the claims these different religions and scriptures make? In other words, when you say that no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, that is a take on spiritual reality that you say is superior to everyone else. You see, the argument sounds humbling. All faith lead to God, but it's not because it is itself an exclusive statement. And if you believe it and agree with it, you're right. And if you disagree with it, you're wrong. The very argument implodes under the weight of its own logic. See, the fact of the matter is, all religions make exclusive, narrow statements. Whether you say that God is a trinity as we do in Christianity or whether you say that God is one as they do in Judaism or Islam or whether you say that God is many as they do in Hinduism or whether you say there is no God as they do in secular humanism, in every one of those instances, you are making a truth, an exclusive truth statement that has the potential to exclude. You know what religion is? It's an approach to answer the big questions of life. And I think you can compartmentalize those big questions into four categories. Origin, how did I get here? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, what is right and wrong? Destiny, where do I go when I die and why? And every one of us deep down wants answers to those questions. And those answers are religious in nature because you can't prove them in a lab. You can't prove them through scientific evidence. Why? Because they're faith assumptions. They're religious beliefs. And listen, every World religion makes exclusive, narrow statements when answering the big questions of life. So what is not at issue is whether or not religion makes exclusive, narrow statements. It, they do. What is at issue is, rather, which claims most closely align with reality. And so what I want to do for, for, for the balance of our time is look at a very unique aspect of Christianity when compared to every other world religion. In fact, Christianity says one thing, every other world religion says the exact opposite, and they say the same thing. Talk about a unique aspect of Christianity. And it's this, Christianity says you are saved by grace, 
not by your own human efforts. Every world religion says the exact opposite, and they all say the same thing. No, no, no. You are saved by your own human efforts through your good works. Christianity says no. In fact, the Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Look at it with me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These two passages are connected. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, I don't see narrow with Christianity. I see incredible grace that is open to everyone. In my mind, narrow would be if we were told we have to obey so many rules and so many commandments and observe so many events in order to get to God and to heaven. Take, for example, the pantheistic worldview and the caste system. That, to me, seems restrictive. You can't break free of the shackles of the caste system of your birth. They would say karma. Take Islam and the five pillars of Islam. You have to pray in a certain direction. You have to say the creed. You have to observe the fast of Ramadan. That, to me, respectfully seems restrictive and narrow. But when God, Jesus says, anyone who calls on my name will no way be cast out, that is incredibly inclusive. That is opening the gates of heaven. And anyone who calls upon his name shall be saved. See, the big difference between Christianity and every other world religion has to do with the manner in which you are saved. Every worldview and every world religion apart from Christianity are very similar. Very, very similar. Because they all operate out of the same assumption when it comes to human nature. Sure, they have different beliefs. Sure, they have different rituals. Sure, they have different ways of practicing those beliefs and rituals. And certainly some of those faiths more closely aligned with Christian values than others. But at the core, they're very similar because they all operate out of the same assumption when it comes to you, when it comes to me, when it comes to human nature. And this is what they all say, that you and I, humanity, we are intrinsically, naturally, automatically pure of heart. We're good. And that's why we can earn our way to God. Christianity says the exact opposite. No, you're not. Jesus said, no one is good, no, not one. The apostle Paul said, we're all sinners. We fall short of the glory of God. We need help. We need a savior. His name is Jesus. J.F. Baldwin in his book, The Deadliest Monster, compares Christianity with 10 of the most popular religions of the world, from Hinduism to Judaism, Buddhism to Islam. And he said these words, and I quote, no other worldview or religion can possibly accept the Christian contention that man or woman is a desperate sinner who can do nothing to save themselves. Every other world religion believes, listen, at its core, that humanity, if not perfect, is at least good enough to save themselves. And because all other religions believe that we are good enough, then the path to God, the path to nirvana, the path to bliss, the path to heaven, whatever you want to call it, is based on human effort. And if God sees me doing enough good, I'm in. 
It's all based on me and my goodness and my good works. And Christianity says, no. No one is good. We all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all need help. We all need a Savior. His name is Jesus. Now, here's the question I want us thinking about. Which two schools of thought most closely align with the reality that you see around you and that you experience in your own heart that humanity and you are good intrinsically and you can earn your way to God? Just try harder, but you're, you're good. That's every world religion or Christianity stands all alone. No, you, you, we live in a fallen world, and I'm a sinner, and I need his help. Which two schools of thoughts most closely align with the reality that you see around you and that you experience in your own life? Christian apologists, again, those who defend the faith, will tell you that one very important way to test the claims of a religion or a worldview is to determine whether or not the claims are experientially relevant. In other words, do you experience the claims in your own life? Do they seem real to you and to what you experience? So let me, let me just speak for myself. When the Bible says about me that I'm a sinner, that I fall short of the glory of God, that I can't live up to his perfect standards, that I have this natural tendency to be self-centered and self-absorbed apart from God and I need help, here's what I say to that. That's dead on. That is so accurate for me. It, it, it is experientially relevant, in other words. I experience that reality in my own life and in what I experience around me. Remember the Apostle Paul, what he said about himself in Romans 7? He said this, I do the things I do not want to do, and I don't do the things I know I ought to do. What a wretched man I am. Has any of you felt like that? Or am I all alone here, huh? Help me, help me a little bit. And, and, and I know I have felt that way at times. And what the apostle is speaking about is this very real tension between our humanity and the flesh and the spirit of God and where he wants us to go. And apart from God, though, we have this natural tendency to be self-centered and self-absorbed to the point where we can hurt and alienate other people. Why? Because we're not intrinsically. We're not automatically, we're not naturally pure and good of heart. All you have to do is look around in society and you see neglect and you see abuse and you see murders. All we have to do is look around in our society. All we have to do is look at our history, the history of the world, and you see the horrors of slavery and the, the evils of the death chambers of Auschwitz. And you see a fallen, sinful world. But it's not only out there. If we get real with ourselves, we see it in our own human hearts. Malcolm Muggridge, a moral philosopher and author, shared a story about himself when he was in his young 20s, when he lived in India. He said he went out for a swim in a nearby lake and he saw the silhouette of a woman bathing at a distance. 
He said, I was a very lustful man back then, and he said, I swam with all my might towards her. As one could imagine, the woman was shocked seeing this young man approaching her, and she covered herself. But she was not only shocked because of that, she was shocked because she was full of leprosy. He said she had no fingers. He said her eyes were bulging out of her eye sockets, and then he said these words to himself, what a horribly ugly woman. And then he said, no, what a horribly ugly heart that I'm living with. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And Jesus so accurately described the human heart as wicked above all things. And it leaves me thinking, how am I in my fallen, sinful ways, going to reach an all-pure, just, holy God. The impure, imperfect, temporal me reaching the perfect, eternal God in my own human efforts, hear me, is laughable. It's absurd. It makes no sense, given the realities that I see and experience in my own life. You know what makes a lot more sense to me? Is a loving God reaching down and rescuing you and rescuing me from our fallen, sinful ways. And it leaves me thinking, whew, I, I, I need help. I need a savior. I need Jesus. What about you? Which two schools of thought most closely align with the reality that you see and experience in your own lives? That you're good. You've got this. Just try harder. Or Christianity, which stands all alone, that says, no, you don't, you don't have this. You're fallen, you're a sinner, and you need help. You need a savior. His name is Jesus. Jesus shares a parable in Luke 18 about two men praying in the temple. One is a Pharisee, the other one is a tax collector. You could not get two more opposite people in this culture. The Pharisee was respected by the community, a religious leader outwardly so holy and righteous. The tax collector was viewed as the worst of all sinners, a traitor, a Jewish man who worked for the Roman government for the purpose of levying taxes on his own Jewish people, often at such high rates that he would profit on their backs, a traitor. The worst of all sinners, that's the backdrop. Then Jesus describes how the two of them are praying. He said the Pharisee kept thanking him about how, just about how great he was and that he wasn't like a sinner. He said, God, thank you that I'm not like the lowlife sinner. Thank you that I'm not like an evildoer, a robber, an adulterer, and certainly not like this low-life tax collector. And then he begins to boast about himself to God. He said, I fast twice a week. I give 10% of all that I have away to help those in need. I'm just so good. And then Jesus pivots to the tax collector. He said he wouldn't even come to the front of the temple. He stood at a distance. He never raised his head up. He, he kept it bowed down. He beat his breast and he cried softly, have mercy on me, a 
sinner. And Jesus said these words, look at it with me in Luke 18, 14. He said, this man, the tax collector, not the other one, went home justified in the eyes of God. In other words, he was accepted by God. Why? Because he needed God. Pharisee didn't need God. It's like, I'm good. I'm good. One commentary writer said of that passage, perhaps better than any other parable, this parable points out the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Christians recognize the horror story of sin and humbly seek mercy. The world, regardless of religion, believes that their works redeem them. Please don't let anyone fool you and say all religions are the same. They are not. Christianity stands all alone when it comes to grace. Let the words of the tax collector sink in. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. You know, I think sometimes forgiveness is just kind of thrown around in our society. But if you were to ask about forgiveness to a Hindu or a Buddhist, they would say, no, 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 karma, karma, karma. I must pay my own sin debt. My uncle, a wonderful man, Ziat, lives in India. Excuse me, lives in, he's, he lives in Italy, but he's of Indian descent. And he was visiting two years ago, and he's a Muslim. And I asked him, do you know for certain if you will go to paradise when you die, to heaven? He said, no. I never know. My good deeds must outweigh my bad deeds. But you know, Christianity and Christ offers forgiveness. And it's a very real answer of hope to the very real problem of the human heart. In fact, it's the only faith that addresses the very real problem of our sinful, fallen human heart. No other faith system addresses it. Only Christianity does. And when you accept the grace of God in and through the cross of Jesus, he will begin to change you. He will begin to change me from the inside out, and it will produce in us loving reconciling, unifying behaviors towards those who do not believe the way we do. Because it's flowing out of a heart of what? Humility. Out of a heart of thankfulness for all that God has done for you and has done for me. And we want the world to know Jesus, the giver of life. I'm going to go back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 very quickly, and I want to emphasize what the Apostle Paul says as he closes out this, this passage. Look at it again with me. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that, get this, so that what? no one can boast. At the heart of grace is humility, no boasting allowed. I was 13 years old when I first was exposed, if you will, to Christianity. It was at a small little Baptist church. 
The pastor of that church was Pastor Robert Hart. I'll never forget him. He's the one that introduced me as a child to to Christianity. And I remember one day he was preaching on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And I remember being moved by the verses because I knew at 13 I was a sinner. And when I saw that salvation is a gift through the grace of God, it was liberating for me. And I was very moved by the phrase, no boasting allowed in in the faith. Because you and I, we know this. Religion can be very divisive. It can create strife among us. It can pit one group against the other. I mean, think about it. It's you saying, I have the truth and I obey the truth. You, on the other hand, do not. And therefore, you're evil. You're immoral. You're less than me. And it can lead down a slippery slope of self-righteousness. Think of Luke 18 in that parable, how the Pharisee looked down at that low-life tax collector. And you can begin to dehumanize those who do not believe the way you do when you think it's all based on your own efforts. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. But you know, that's an impossibility for those who follow Christ. For those who follow the one while hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world, he prays for those who put him there. Father, forgive them for they know not what They do. The gospel is the only faith system I know that leads us, that calls us to humble ourselves before those who do not believe the way we do, to not view ourselves any better than those who do not believe the way we do, to not view them any worse than us because we claim to have the truth. You know, they they don't. Because the gospel is very clear. We are not saved because we're wise. We are not saved because we're good. We're not saved because we're righteous. We are saved because the one who is perfect, Jesus, died in your place and in mine. And frankly, you can't have salvation unless you admit that you're no better than anyone else. Unless you admit that you're a sinner in need of his grace. No boasting allowed. You know, when Christianity began to grow in the first century, the Greeks and the Romans had very inclusive faiths. Everyone had a God or all faiths led to God. It was Greco-Roman paganism. And And then Christianity comes along. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusivity in the midst of an inclusive culture. And yet, simple fact of history is that Christianity has produced more inclusive communities than any community that history has ever seen. Take, for example, Greco-Roman paganism of the first century. They separated out the rich from the poor and the, and, and the races. Then Christianity came, came along and the races and classes were brought together. Why? Because we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all in need of God's grace. Rich, poor, black, white, male, female, Jew, Gentile. And as Christians, hear me, we are called to humble ourselves before those who do not believe the way we do to love and serve them so that we can point them to the giver of life. 
The gospel leads us to love and serve those who do not believe the way we do. Recently, I was listening to a talk from theologian, author, Tim Keller. Oh, it was, it was so good, and it was very applicable to what we're talking about today. I said, oh, I have to bring in this one quote. It's, it's just so good. And this is what he said, and I quote, if you put moralistic religion, that's religion based on your own human efforts, okay? If you put moralistic religion into the center of your life, you will feel superior to secularists, people without faith, people of the world. If you put secularism into the center of your life, you will feel superior to all these stupid religious people. But if you take the gospel into the center of your life, you will be humbled before people who don't have the gospel You will serve people who do not believe like you do. You see, the claims of Jesus not only offer a real answer of hope to the very real problem of the human heart that we have fallen, we have a sinful heart nature. But for those of us who accept the grace of God in and through the cross of Jesus, it will produce in us loving, reconciling, unifying behaviors to love and serve those who do not believe the way we do because we want to point them to the giver of life. And it all flows out of a humble heart out of a heart of gratitude for what he has done for you and what he's done for me. So do do me a favor, huh? When you're no longer here, many, many, many years from now, and you find yourself in front of God, please do not say to him, you have not done enough. You should have given me five saviors, and 20 paths to you because it implies that Jesus is not enough and yet God so loved the world. He so loved you and he so loved me that he came in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us from our very real sin nature. And if we just put our faith and trust in him, he'll forgive our every sin. He'll give us eternal life where there is no more death, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more sorrow. (laughs) But he said, I have one requirement, that you honor the one who died in your place, that you honor my son, Jesus. So, to the question, Is Christianity too narrow? No. I don't see narrow with Christianity. I see incredible grace that is open to everyone. All you have to do is put your faith and trust in him. And and, listen, 
and never forget what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 2, 3. He said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's pray. Father God, you are so good. And Father, we're just so thankful for the truth of your word and how it just resonates with the reality of that which we experience and see in our own lives. And yes, the world is fallen and we see a fallen nature even within ourselves. And Father, I just pray that everyone understands how beautiful the answer is that you have provided through the through the cross of Jesus, that we have hope through the cross of Jesus. It's a very real answer to the very real problem of the human heart, the grace of God. Father, my prayer is that every single one of us, wherever we are in our journey to you, my prayer is that every one of us would draw just a bit closer to you in and through the cross of Jesus as you begin to change us, Father. May we be, as a, as a body of believers, may we be, light to a very dark world that needs to know all about your son, Jesus, all about the giver of life. We thank you for all that you do and all you will continue to do through a faithful body of believers, and we pray everything in Jesus' name, amen.